Hey guys, welcome to another edition of the Ega and Carlos Tennis Show. This is episode 18. This is officially our last episode in 2023. So it's been a fun ride with you all this year. Uh, this episode is going to be a recap of all of the most memorable matches that we can think of featuring Ega and Carlos. And so David and I have decided to come up with a list of most exciting, most thrilling, whatever our criteria really is, narratively based, could be based on quality, entertainment value is a big one for sure. And we've decided to convene and see what we've come up with as, as uh, 2023 comes to an end. Hi, Damien. This should be a fun show. Yeah, uh, we both chose five matches each from both Świątek and Alcaraz. They're not the same. I think some of these will obviously be shared, but they're, the lists aren't the same. Um, yeah, as Vansh said, the criteria could be very different. So basically, that's what we're going to talk about for like the next 50 minutes or so, probably. We have no idea how long this will take. By the way, quite risky of you to say that this is the last episode in 2023, because let's imagine, you know, Carlos Alcaraz announces retirement in a couple of days. Oh. <laughs> of course, that's Yeah, barring happen, any emergency right? yeah. alerts like that, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, let's, let's just get down to business. <laughs> All right, with that scared point, let's start with Alcaraz. <laughs> Since he's going to retire in 10 days. No, I'm kidding. Um, but but obviously, I mean, right away, the first match that comes to our mind when you think of the 2023 season for Alcaraz has to be the Wimbledon final. So I'm assuming you had that on your list too. I did. Uh, definitely, that was one of the first choices for me. Um, yeah, I, I think probably the Cincinnati one, which we're also going to talk about, let's be honest, even though it's a loss. But it's probably the one that I enjoyed more overall in terms of the quality. But Wimbledon is a bigger story for Carlos. It's just so huge to beat Djokovic in a Grand Slam final, needless to say. He was the only player to do that in 2023. I mean, I won't be surprised if he's the only player to do it in 2024 as well, for example. I mean, even even with Sinners Rise, I think I, would, I still consider Alcaraz in a let's say Grand Slam scenario, the biggest rival for Djokovic right now. And also to do it at Wimbledon, where, you know, maybe back in the day, we wouldn't have said that this is Djokovic's strongest slam. Maybe we still can't say it with the Australian Open, but like it, it's really close between these two at the moment. And uh, he has dominated the grass, you know, since maybe 2018. He has been so dominant on it. Um, not uh, like it's such a novelty surface this, these days that the experience of other players definitely is something like for the veterans it's really helpful that the youngsters still can't really find their way about the surface I think with Alcaraz we sort of had the idea that he could be good on grass but maybe in two years time or something like that but then he just wins all his matches on the, during the grass season obviously after that thriller against Rindernech which I also considered by the way in Queens but I didn't end up putting it on the list and yeah, yeah just to, just to beat Djokovic in a five set match in I think I had the idea going into the final you know by the time with how well Karas was playing that he could do it but especially after losing the first set in like 20 minutes uh, obviously, if not for that second set steal, I don't think this would have worked out. But he does find that beautiful return to uh, to win the second set. He takes advantage of a bit of a Djokovic deep later, but still has to come back and win it in five. You know, defeat Djokovic in a fifth in a five setter. This is the tournament that sort of made his season as well. So um, yeah, it's an obvious selection for sure. Yeah, for all those reasons that you mentioned, you know, coupled with Djokovic's dominance is Alcaraz's inexperience on the surface, obviously, because it was just his fourth event in total and on, on grass, of course, you know, dating back to Wimbledon 2021 and then, yeah, then one more Wimbledon edition and then Queens and Wimbledon this year. So to see him develop that quickly on the surface, especially after given what also happened at the 
French Open where he was just so hyped up to play Djokovic and understandably, I mean, they hadn't met in over a year and there was all this tension and build up and, you know, we, we saw two really high sets of t- quality sets of tennis and then unfortunately, yeah, physically, you know, the body gave up and started cramping. And so that must have been a really jarring experience. So they didn't go from that immediately sort of a week later, find yourself or I guess a week or 10 days later, find yourself in this do or die situation against Mindernesh uh, and then come out on top and then just grow with every single match. I mean, I remember him saying like he was watching Murray and Federer videos just to kind of get a handle on the footwork and sort of the, this, you know, we knew he could be good on it, but he still needed that extra little bit of seasoning. And definitely, you know, we saw, we saw him just adapt to the conditions very nicely in Queens, but also at Wimbledon against very different types of opponents all the way through to the final. So you, you got a feeling that, um, you know, he's going to be able to ex- play a little bit more freely than he was at Roland Garros. And obviously that panned out after he lost that first set, nearly got bageled. But then, you know, really just had such a good attitude about it throughout the whole time. And, you know, you mentioned the you mentioned the chem- missed chances, obviously, for Djokovic in the second set tiebreaker, a couple of backhands that you don't normally see him miss. But nonetheless, Alcaraz took full advantage of that. And when he went up two sets to one, I mean, no one thought the match was... Uh, you still didn't think the match would, would, would come simply for him, and it didn't, right? Because Djokovic fought back in the fourth, and then obviously we all remember the swing volley that Djokovic had to go up, but also Alcaraz put up, put up a really high defensive lob and put Djokovic in such a tough spot, you know, where he, you know, wasn't sure whether to take it, on, take it as an overhead or let it bounce or, um, you know, decided to go for the swing volley. But but also um, from that point onwards, Alcaraz was really flawless in that fifth set. Like some, you know, maybe the best set of tennis that you can imagine yourself playing in such a such a big spot. Like, you know, the amount of winners. I think he hit eighteen winners or something in that fifth set, and he just really never let uh, Djokovic back in it. And when he had to serve for the match, he came up with some really. I mean, he came up with like four really good serves at the end, and you know, went for this drop shot lob combo. So I always remember that. And then, then obviously, yeah, just him becoming Wimbledon champion for the first time has to be, yeah, like the biggest moment of his season. Yeah, and um, actually, you know, winning or losing the match is not a criteria here. I think both of us probably went for this match as well. I mean, against Djokovic in Cincinnati. This could have been one of the yeah. biggest wins of Alcaraz's career. Uh, not even so far, like in the long run as well. Eventually, you know, some consider that it set him behind for the next three or four months. Who knows? Uh, it's pretty hard to tell. Yeah. But anyway, that third set was like absolutely special. Of course, there was a lead. Uh, what was it? 7-5, 4-2. There was a match point that Alcaraz had in the second set. But still, I mean, that, that third set was probably the best of the year. Well, 100% it was the best set of the year. If the first two were yeah, just no good, we'd be talking about like, you know, a top 10 classic all time. And uh, yeah, just, just maybe even if you rewatch it now, you know, the, the match points that Alcaraz saves in the third set at 3-5 down, especially that one where he chases down the whatever it was. Was it a drop shot? Was it a drop volley? I can't remember, but passes Djokovic down yeah, the line. Yeah, this forehand angle volley that Djokovic hits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, again, that, that against most players would be a winner and he just somehow finds the open space down the line. And on the match forehand. point, like this could have been one of the most legendary match yeah. point saves of all time if Alcaraz wins the match. He doesn't end up doing it, but still the, the length of the match, the, the, the thrill, the excitement, 
And especially with, you know, that story, sort of Cincinnati, right? Last, last warm-up, of course, not taking Winston-Salem into consideration, but they're never going to be playing it. But like the last warm-up for these guys before the US Open, you think of them after Wimbledon, especially as definitely the best players in the world. So the narrative was massive. And yeah, I think even if even with a loss, we have to consider this one of the best matches that Alcaraz played this year. Has it sort of started, you know, a period of relative drought for him yeah and maybe the the result of it maybe maybe the end outcome was really important in that as well especially given how emotional he got right after right after losing right and you know you won Wimbledon against this guy but uh, a couple of weeks later you play him in the Cincinnati final and the loss still hurts you so much but well I guess that's how much he cares but yeah anyway I mean this had to be included as well yeah, for sure. And also going into that whole week, I mean, there were so many physical matches that he had to play and it just never was very comfortable for him, right? Against, uh, you know, Thompson and Purcell and all these like net rushers, right? Tommy Paul, I guess, uh, Herkach as well. So there were a lot of these moments that he had to really scrap his way out of and just to get to that final and then to to play such a uh high level final i guess even in a loss i mean there were just so many positive things that he could take away from it i guess big picture that maybe you know it sort of hindered him you could argue for about three or four months but maybe like you know two three time two three years from now or maybe at some point even next year we could be looking at this as like a a match that really helped him long term i mean he hadn't lost a big final up until this point i believe he was i mean he had won all his four masters finals and then the two two major finals so it was his first like real sort of heartbreaking defeat and obviously it meant a lot to him. I mean, to put everything into it for four hours and, you know, come so close at the at the very end. And, uh, you know, his hand also started cramping in that fourth set, uh, third set tiebreaker. And I thought he did very well to go down. From, I thought he did very well to at least make get it to four all in that third set tiebreak, even though his hand was cramping. And after that, I don't think there was much he really could have done because because of, uh, of yeah, like finally that all caught up to him. But, but I think maybe he would probably just he would probably learn a lesson of like the dips and focus, you know, for, for instance, like in the, in the second set when he's up four to three or sort of that patch from like four, two in the second set to four, five. I think that's where, yeah, he, he sort of led Djokovic back into it because Novak was of course still struggling with the heat, which got to him in this, in, in this match. And I sort of wondered at that time, how much is Djokovic going to want to fight here and dig in given that the U S open is around the corner. Uh, and also, is, is Alcaraz going to have that little bit of a dip? And unfortunately, yeah, I mean, those two things are just aligned in a way that we got. Unfortunately for Alcaraz, in the end, he didn't end up winning, but we got this huge epic. And every single time you thought one player had the momentum, it just went the other way. So it was just, it was one of those matches that you just, I mean, you're like, okay, yeah, Alcaraz has got this. No, 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 Djokovic has got this. No, no, Alcaraz. It was just, it was just, yeah. And then sort of that highlight period that you described from the match point saves, the four that Alcaraz saved, and then from the second set tiebreak, but more so from like three, five, all the way to the end of the match until, until the tiebreak, it was just like, yeah, the athleticism and shot making and everything was just through the roof where there's no doubt in my mind, it was the best highest level of set one individual set that we have seen all year in the men's tour. So yeah, this one has to be on it just for, for those reasons, I think. Yeah, clearly Djokovic had the determination to to, to grind it out for four hours. And yeah, uh, he did, as you yeah. said, I mean, he we got that amazing match out of it. And certainly I, I agree that in the future, you know, and maybe less than a couple of years, we could be looking at this loss very, very differently for Karas. Although, yeah, at the time, it definitely hurt him 
quite a lot. One poor service game and you kind of let the legendary rival back into the match, which also is a lesson in itself. And sort of similarly, like Wimbledon Cincinnati is one of this, these events that Djokovic sort of started dominating in his late, let's say, you know, late prime. Let's call it that. I don't want to say post prime yeah. anymore. Post-pandemic, yeah, or I mean, yeah, post-restart, yeah. I mean, the the, the very, the, the late career version of Djokovic with, like, an improved serve and more aggressive play in general uh, really loves that event. So it's even more, um, it, it's even a better feat to to trouble him there or in London or at Wimbledon. Um, I think this is probably where our lists are going to differ because, well, there aren't any other, like, super obvious selections. I have one more Wimbledon match. And it's actually the Daniel Medvedev semifinal. And I guess narratively, it's pretty similar to the Djokovic one, where like we were expecting Alcaraz to be good on grass, but maybe not yet. And of course, Alcaraz had defeated Medvedev in Indian Wells. He used some tactics that we were expecting to see on grass as well in this matchup. Uh, but that was, of course, sandpaper. Like that wasn't actual hardcore, according to Daniel Medvedev. So I was still, I still yep. entered that Wimbledon semi thinking that with the serve advantage, um, Medvedev could actually still be very competitive in this, maybe even win it, just because, well, um, yeah, I figured that on a faster court like this, Alcaraz won't be able to overwhelm him to this extent. But yeah, he actually did. And like the way he was able to play return plus one aggression, I mean, just, just literally at some points of the match, dominate the games even on Medvedev's serve and just you know rush the net again again win 90% of his serve and volley points out wide uh use the drop shot as well I mean just obviously combine all of the aspects in his game that so great uh, like that just works so naturally against Medvedev's defensive positioning on the court uh yeah I just think it was one of these like really dominant performances of the year I think it's probably the only one I have on, yeah it's it's the only one on, on my list that's really straightforward um but I think especially compared to what I was expecting out of the match it's also one of the most impressive to me yeah I think it I think that one really stands out as like a really yeah you know a, a dominant sort of master class against you know against well one of his big rivals but also but also at, at Wimbledon where I certainly thought it would be more competitive than Indian Wells I think most people did going in they thought Alcaraz would would uh, would win, and he was the favorite. But it was, you know, not by uh, that big of a margin. So, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a good choice. I did not go with that actually. I went with a, a different match at Wimbledon, uh, which is the third round against Nicholas Jari. Of course, these two also played a memorable match in Rio during the clay season, and Jari has had a resurgent year. And um, you know, I'm well. I guess someone that I just like to, uh, well, I just really rate his abilities. Let's just say uh, off the ground, uh, and also with the big serve, and just uh, yeah, you know how how he can just sort of take it to opponents with his you know high margin aggression, and he can move decently well as well, and he's a good baseline or two, and I think he's strong off both wings, and I, I think he really actually offered Alcaraz a lot of resistance in this match, nearly four hours for Carlitos to come through it, but there were a lot of moments where. Alcaraz really had to use his his uh, return of serve very effectively, like blocking returns, reading these different serves that Jari was throwing at him, a lot of body serves, um, and yeah, just withstand that sort of barrage of uh, of ag aggression from the Chilean. And like he really had to dig deep because he won the first set six three, but then it got really really tight after that. Um, you know, the second set, Jari really stepped up his level, 
started serving way better, started hitting these backhand down the lines that forced Alcaraz to hit forehands on the run. And, you know, he, he, he wasn't, he was starved for time on a lot of these occasions. And, you know, uh, at, at that point when it was once at all, he was in, he was in a real fight there. So to come through that one, especially, I think he was also down a break in the fourth um, as well. So there were a lot of moments where this match could have gotten even more complicated. And I think uh, it was just his first real big test, like on a, on a grass court against someone. Well, Jari doesn't have, Jari's parts are still great, given that he's won all of his titles on it. And obviously, you know, yeah, especially the South American clay. And, but, but on grass, you know, you'd still sort of consider him in that, you know, big serve, good mover type category that would excel on the surface if he just had more bites at the apple. So for this one, like for him to go through Jari and then Berrettini as well, who was in really good form, in the fourth round, and then you know the Runa, Medvedev, Djokovic, like those five opponents are about as tough as it can really get at Wimbledon uh, at this time. So it it's kind of started this impressive run that carried him to the title. So I picked that one as a exciting match. Then yeah, it, it makes sense. I mean, honestly, all of these five opponents that you mentioned, like all of these matches, could be on my list. Uh, Berrettini just emerged as like a random threat that no one could have foreseen before the draw most might before the tournament started because he was in you know and in Stuttgart he was losing to Sonego and like crying getting off the court or something like that so uh yeah Rune I mean the, the to beat him in straights as well so honestly all of these matches could make my list I like the call I actually have another match with Jari on my list which is kind of funny uh but I do have that Rio one that you mentioned I just think it was a very good fight early in the season. He, of course, Alcara skipped the Australian Open with an injury and then came back like really rejuvenated. He wasn't playable in Buenos Aires. Rio was a tougher deal. I mean, mostly because he was playing back-to-back weeks. Uh, Maybe against Jari in the second set, we already saw some of that injury that was going to trouble him in the final. Uh, But I think the the -hmm. battle was exceptional. The shot making, the pass, for example, that he hits there, um, um, I think it was maybe what was it second set. Anyway, uh, never mind. You, you all know early what part of the third, early early yeah, third set. Yeah, right. early third set. Yeah, that could, that that makes sense. Like he's not even on the camera, and and there was a lot of uh, stunning shot making like this yeah. in this match. And all the things you said about Jari, like that was when we still didn't know that he was gonna, you know, have a year like this, make the top twenty, finally produce on other surfaces as well, not only clay, which. Uh, yeah, despite in theory having a game that could do it, he never actually did. And, you know, 2023 changed all that. But that week in Rio was already quite sensational from him. And it came just out of nowhere. Um, the week earlier in Buenos Aires, he lost in the qualifying to Merigen Alves. But he was truly peaking that week. We didn't know that it was going to be this consistent. Maybe, you know, in the long run, in, in hindsight, it also even in, increases the importance of this match to me. Uh, but yeah, I just I just love the clay court battling there in South America. And actually, that was some of the funny. I think that was some of the most fun tennis that Alcaraz played this year, um, Buenos Aires and Rio. Uh, he he definitely came back from that injury break with like lots of energy, and you could you could see it. And of course, it st- he started the season really well despite the Nori loss. Uh, Indian was Miami were still excellent, and of course, going into the clay season, being the main favorite for Alcaraz. Uh, he definitely had a phenomenal first half of the year. And I don't want to say it's because he didn't play the Australian Open, but I think it actually helped him out in that, in that stretch of events. Uh, he, he had more left in the tank for it. He had more 
hunger, he had more drive. And and it did show in matches like this. And for two sets, Jari was pushing him as, as hard as it gets, really. Yeah, I like this call a lot. Uh, you're absolutely right. Oh, he came back after the injury, just fully like rejuvenated, filled with energy and just ready to yeah, go on this go on this run of yeah, I mean you, you because we still sort of wondered like is he gonna come back fully ready right away? And he it proved that he was. So and then and then yeah, this match, it was a real tug of war, the first two sets, I remember, and then the third set once Akras got uh, you know, injected with uh, his amazing shot making and just started to enjoy himself a lot more on the court after a while and just really toy with Jerry. And then he just ran away with the third set, six love, I believe. But for like two and a half sets, it was no no joke. I mean, it was such a high level match. So yeah, that's a that's a good call and, and sort of set up uh, yeah, the, the, the Indian Wells in Miami for him because he ended up missing Acapulco as well and he ended up getting injured. But also like even in, in the Nori match, the, his level was insane for someone who could barely move. <laughs> he was just hitting these winners from these uh, these positions in the court. I was thinking of including that, that one too, one, actually. Right? The final yeah. against Nori. Like, I, I almost had it on my list. The fight was incredible, you know? The pass, uh, the yeah. uh, forehand down the line that he hit out of position, wow. uh, given what the physical state that he was in. Like, that's one of the best shots of the year, considering all the circumstances. So I was thinking of that loss too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember thinking, like, just feeling amazed that it was seven five in the third, considering how much he was struggling physically. And yeah, so so yeah, that, that those are, that's a good call. I had another Medvedev match, but it was it was the Indian Wells one. Just as like, why well, I wanted to have one match as like a, a demolition, you know, that was like just from start to finish, almost a perfect match from him. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, certainly not Medvedev's favorite conditions, but Medvedev was on a ridiculous streak at the time. Obviously, winning Rotterdam, Doha, you know, Dubai, and then you know coming through that injury scare against Zverev in the fourth round match, of course, and then you know, yes, complaining about the hard courts, but still, you know, still is, is a serious threat uh, to just b- because he was carrying that wave and you know the the performance from him, the patience from the back of the court. I think mixed in with the serve and volley, the amount of times that he just made Medvedev look so ordinary in that match, um, and just yeah, never never really looked back. It was so dominant from first point to last, and sort of just my general opinion of him being a real threat to win multiple Indian Wells titles, and just because I think the surface just suits him so well, like it just allows this, like it becomes just such a canvas for him to show everything that he's made of in terms of the yeah just the explosiveness and the the shot making athleticism but also just the movement and the way he's able to slide on that hard court and just cover so much court as well and yeah just you know even even something like the serve and volley it was not like a not like a play that you thought would be this repeatable you know especially on the on the deuce side ad side and just yeah just he just kept Medvedev guessing with so much variety that yeah I mean the Russian was really just confused the whole time and it sort of, you sort of wondered like, is he is he really going to lose any time soon? Because he was just looking so so sharp that week. I mean, he, he I don't think he dropped a set the whole way to winning Indian Wells. So, and sort of completing the Indian Wells in Miami double as well, not in the same season, but you know, just individually. So, that's the one I had. But yeah, Alcaraz will it, absolutely cool that we dominate. Picked, we both, mm-hmm. yeah, we 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 both picked. Uh, Jari matches and Medvedev matches. Oh, yeah, just different ones. 
It it would yeah. be even more funny if my last pick, if you also chose um, another match against the same player, which actually was possible because there were two and both were really good. Uh, but before I get to that, yeah, I mean, Alcaraz will absolutely dominate Indian Wells. I agree with that. Uh, the reason why I didn't choose that particular match of one was actually, yeah, the surface. But now that I think about it, you know, uh, before the match, I remember Alcaraz being like a marginal favorite, really. So, you know, that really yeah. tells you what people were thinking about Medvedev, who was on like a 20-match win streak at the time. So, yeah, right. and um, even though Alcaraz didn't win Indian Wells in 2022, he was still excellent at it and obviously lost that free setter with Nadal, which was pretty crazy quality compared to the conditions, compared to the wind. And on the way, he was unbeatable. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, next year, he's he's the favorite for Indian Wells for me, even if Djokovic plays. Of course, that can change after Australia, after February, depending on how they do. Uh, but yeah, my last uh, pick, because we've talked about four matches that I had, my last is actually Shanghai against Evans. So if you had US Open against Evans, and that's like fairly <laughs> possible. I think some people yeah. would have it on, on their lists. I think both these matches were pretty similar quality. I ended up choosing Shanghai. I don't even know why, but basically I just love the matchup and how they both seem to enjoy playing each other. And they clearly do. Like it's it's not just seem, you know, they they are enjoying it. They have similar, I guess, temperaments in terms of the shot making the uh, sort of show uh, you know the, the fact that they're both showmen and they just like winning but at the same time also giving the crowd something to enjoy and you know coming up with a few sensational shots of course Evans is also one of the most watchable players on the tour with the slices with the net play with all the things that he can convey he sort of have to, has to be like this as well you know not having that much sort of natural power he needs to outsmart his opponents a little bit of course Alcaraz has like yeah massive amounts of pop on his strokes definitely doesn't need it as well but he is a showman at heart let's say it well let's call it <laughs> like this and uh, yeah I mean that I think the way these two clash is just really exciting and any match between them should be sensational actually well when they played on clay this year okay maybe not but <laughs> But when they when they're gonna face each other on like a court that suits Evans a little bit more than that, I think this matchup should continue being like one of the most watchable on tour. Yeah, in terms of watchability, these two are like some of the best you can get on tour. Like just individually, they're just so much fun to watch. So to see them clash against each other in both the US Open and Shanghai, I enjoyed both matches a lot. Like just tremendous, like if you're just a neutral just watching this match, it's like a shot making heaven. It's like a, yeah, it's like a, a game game for the purists, let's say. <laughs> when these two play each other, just yeah, the you know, Evans' slice backhand and then his ability to just, yeah, you know, deal with Alcaraz's pace better than most with his slice, and then also mix in the serve and volley from time to time and just yeah, like really just enjoy the match even if yeah even if well like you know Alcaraz will have the upper hand most of the times because his weapons are bigger but uh yeah just so much fun so much fun really to watch and a lot of breaks of serve as well I remember in the first set in Shanghai and that kept things kind of interesting for a long period um because well Evans was also still fairly competitive in the second set as well too so yeah some some good uh just classic tennis I guess but for me, actually, I have uh, I have the matches that he played against Tsitsipas in the clay season as like sort of a combo because, well, I guess I, the reason I wanted to include this one as well, but this was just a rivalry that people had a lot of questions about um, coming into this this year of sort of like what is Tsitsipas going to do in terms of 
solving this this puzzle for him. Well, because it's very clear it's it's a bad matchup for Sistipas at this point. Uh with with Alcaraz is yeah, just uh his ability to just relentlessly attack the one-hander, but also just yeah, I mean just tee off on his on his forehand, his backhand on the line, and just it seems like every baseline pattern that Sitsipas likes to use ordinarily is just gonna get completely neutralized and well Alcaraz is just really gonna have the upper hand in the in the baseline dynamics. Uh, and also even the the forehand, which Sitsipas usually loves to dictate with and dominate. Well, I mean he's also getting outmatched there as well with with, with sort of Alcaraz's yeah, RPMs and his 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 weight of shot and how well he can hit it on the on the run and even on the clay as well. It seems like it's even more one sided, which is you know, which is kind of crazy. So but at the same time it's it's understandable given given their strengths and weaknesses, right? And it sort of reminds you of a more dire situation than even Federer versus Nadal at some point, you know, with the Nadal being able to find that one weak spot and up high on Federer's back and early on in their career. But yeah, I don't know. It just the the level of dominance in those matches, particularly even the Roland Garros match, you know, for two sets and a half, it was just no contest really. But it was just this sort of one-way traffic domination that, well, if you're an Alcaraz fan, you're like, yeah, give me give me this matchup every single time in a quarter or semi, you know, until Sitsipas finds out the solution. But um, yeah, my, my takeaway from this was really like, just really wondering sort of what can Sitsipas do to make this more competitive? At the same time, really enjoying the match. Well, for, yeah, for, because sometimes even though the match, the match can be one-sided, it's just, some matches just bring out the very best in one player, and so far it seems like it's it's this one. Obviously, the first match that they played wasn't was wasn't like that when Alcaraz was uh, uh, you know eighteen at the time in twenty twenty one. But yeah, I I just thought I'd include those because it, it was really Alcaraz's peak performance period this year. Yeah, I mean I can't disagree with that. Uh, I don't know if there is a solution, you know. It's like a combination of a bad matchup and also getting a bit outclassed, which I guess is happening to, well, or will be happening to Tsitsipas against all of the three big young talents right now. You know, it's kind of happened already in his Rune matchups as well. Sinner, I guess we're going to start seeing it really soon as well. So it is a it is a big problem for Tsitsipas for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like both the, both of these matches. Probably Aran Garros was the more impressive one to me because Tsitsipas was playing so well in the first week. And so um, yeah. I remember saying that probably even on Twitter and, you know, some people probably laughed after the fact, but I didn't actually say he was going to trouble Alcaraz. I just said he looks ready to give his best there. Like he's just, he's going to bring his best level and we'll see what happens, right? And well, the answer was nothing materialized for him like nothing from that first week really translated to the match against Carlos uh you mentioned Federer and Nadal I mean it was only really dire on clay this one looks pretty dire anytime they play as you said of course US Open 2021 but that was a very different match and still I mean that was one of the first sort of huge moments on the big stage for Alcaraz and it was against Tsitsipas and since then yeah, uh, it, it looks pretty rough for Steph, but I definitely, uh, you know, understand the inclusion of these matches. I was thinking of a few from Ron Garros. I didn't end up going for for either in the end, but certainly, you know, some of the performances there on the way to the Djokovic match were just uh, sort of perfect in terms of Alcaraz maybe exceeding expectations, even in how easy he was gonna have it. 
against Chapo as well. Right. You know, we were all like, oh, Shapovalov played two very good matches and Musetti as well, right? First week of Ron Garros, he was excellent. Uh, he also beat Alcaraz in Hamburg, 2022. So, so yeah, these three matches, I think, as a whole, sort of, sort of work similarly, where you can look at them, uh, look at them as like the opponent was playing very well until they faced Alcaraz. So, yeah, certainly cool choices as well. And I guess with that, we can get to the Schmeltek section, right? We have um, included five picks from me and from you, if my maths is correct. Yep, that is correct. Um, I guess first uh, f- first match right away that I could think of was mm-hmm. well the Beijing match against Garcia actually. Uh, even though it wasn't a ma- it's it's not a major uh, and it's not like Rolling Garros or or uh, yeah Wimbledon, which will which I'm sure will probably have a match from Wimbledon as well. But uh, this one was really sort of the turning point in terms of well, Iga getting back to number one because. You know, after the U.S. Open and after, well, I guess that whole stretch in the U.S. hard courts after she won Warsaw up until the end of Tokyo, we sort of had a lot of questions about what Shiontek needs to do in her game in terms of adjustments, in terms of whether well, is she going to be ready for, you know, the faster surfaces next year? Is she going to be able to compete a bit better uh, when, you know, she's getting out hit by a lot of the big hitters? So there were a lot of these sort of questions coming in and we didn't know you know how great of an end of the season we were expecting her to have like our expectations weren't as high as what it turned out to be in the end and just this match against Garcia really brought the best out of both well both players because I thought Garcia was really playing some of her best tennis she'd played all year it wasn't a great season from her but towards the end you know she put together the semi-final in Guadalajara and then looked in pretty good form on the way here and you've and we sort of knew from their prior matches especially Warsaw in 2022 after the big ego streak that well Garcia has a big game and on her day she can really trouble anybody but especially especially even ego because she'd beaten her before and also with just you know even even her with her not playing as well she was still always going to be in with a chance in every match just with how well she serves right so just given how this match unfolded in sort of the first two sets especially uh with the two tie breaks and the sort of no nonsense sense, which is what you described it as when we did when we discussed this match on uh, on talking tennis, and I guess it makes uh, it, it. We see a lot of matches like this on the men's side where there's not that many breaks to serve, but for the women's side, it's pretty rare, right, to see a match like that. So I thought uh, it brought the best out of both players, and I'm wondering if you had it on your list too. Of course. Um, yeah, what Vans yeah. mentioned, if you guys want to wanna listen to us talking about this match specifically for 40 minutes, it's out there on the YouTube channel, Talking Tennis. Um, yeah, uh, no nonsense tennis. <laughs> Thank you for the attribution of my... Well, it's not a term my coins, <laughs> but I did use it in regards to this match. Uh, this is certainly the type of tennis that I enjoy, where like both players just get out there. You know, They hit spectacular shots. The pace of play is pretty fast. And uh, yeah, to to have it also in terms of that specific moment of the year where Świątek really turns it around, you know, this match sort of wins her the year number one. This match, let's say, even wins Tomasz Wiktorowski coach of the year. Uh, like as a whole, yeah. of course, the two weeks and as a whole, the Świątek number one race. But if this doesn't happen, then she doesn't get there in Cancun. And uh, yeah, to to sort of fend off Garcia, whom we knew was a very tough matchup, whom we knew was going to crush the returns, also play 
um sort of start playing that very efficient tennis that we're we're gonna keep seeing we were gonna keep seeing from her until the end of the year and um especially after the recent losses against Ostapenko, Kudermetova, where she just tries to outhit them and looks lost on the court, looks completely confused. Beijing already in the first three matches we were seeing that it's it might be a little different. But we also had this back in you know in the back of our minds that she played Soribes Tormo, Gracheva, Linet, generally players maybe not at her caliber. Um, the performance against Saribes Tormo was kind of promising because she was like at the net 30 times and she really played what was expected of her in the matchup. And of course, until the end of the year, that was precisely what she did. She played the matchup, she played the opponent. But this was really the first time we saw it against a truly elite opponent. You might say that Garcia is not a truly elite opponent, but in this match she was. This was just as good as Pete yeah. Garcia. And uh, yeah, it was an obvious selection for me as well. I think um, looking at my list, I'm also expect the other match. I'm also expecting you to have is Wimbledon against Bencic. This is, I think, also pretty popular yeah. among Shvontek, you know, fans and thereabouts. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if, if to call us fans. I mean, you know, we are sort of fans, given that we we have the show. I guess we, we are. Yeah, <laughs> we we have to root for some good storylines for the players at least, because losses are also interesting to talk about. Uh, but at least you know yeah. for some storylines, and we definitely enjoy watching both Alcaraz and Sviontek and enjoy them as people as well. Uh, but anyway, Wimbledon against Bencic, I think it's a it's a very popular choice among let's say Igas fandom because you get um, you get you finally get a fight from her. You finally get a match where she comes back and wins. Like for a long while, that was sort of maybe criticized when it comes to her that. Since Krejcikova in Rome, let's say, she hasn't had a win-ugly type of match. Uh, well, she had like Niemeyer at the Australian Open. Of course, Alexandrova maybe in Madrid. Oh, you can count, kind of count that. But like there were some instances, but it was a bit of a trend that Iga either wins the match 6-1, 6-1 or loses it in a similar sort of fashion. I mean, maybe not 6-1, 6-1, but let's say 4-6, 4-6. And here on a surface that she's also not fully comfortable with, that she only played a few events on it herself, of course, despite being a Wimbledon junior champion. But as we saw, that doesn't really translate. And uh, as on, uh, against an opponent who's like such a flat hitter, makes it so uncomfortable for Iga. She plays two very smart points, match point down. She comes back. She shows a lot of determination, a lot of resistance. And I think for that reason, you know, mentally, it was a very important match. Could have been even bigger if she actually won Wimbledon after that. But I think, you know, when we sort of get back to that specific, again, moment in time, after seeing that comeback against Bencic, like that was when probably most of us really thought, okay, like now she can win the title. If, you know, this is a performance that sort of you need to get through and then you actually might be, be you know, strong enough mentally as well. To win, the, to win the title. That didn't materialize, but I think still it was a really big milestone in her career in terms of, yeah, just finding a match again where it's not going according to plan, but she plays smart tennis when it matters and ends up getting through. Yeah, this match was a total lock for me on this list for, for exactly all those reasons. Like if you just want a match that showcases her fight and her sort of like that resilience coming back from, well, I guess in this case, a set and match points down. Like, and in the fashion that she did with just two you know, pretty incredible winners and then the tie break as well that she played was just totally flawless. Uh, and then, well, you know, playing against Benchich, especially like 
the way she's able to redirect on her backhand and just like hit so many backhand down the lines, change direction so well. And just, well, her game is just so naturally tailored, made for for the grass because she just doesn't hit with a ton of firepower when she's forced to generate her own pace, but she really deals with the opponent's pace extremely well and sort of, yeah, a classic sort of reminds me of Martina Hingis uh, when when you see her play. And I think actually there's some connection there because Hingis's mom was coaching benches for a while. So you definitely see some of that in her game. And I sort of always wondered why she didn't do, why she hasn't done better at Wimbledon, I guess, even the majors in generally well, because on yeah. a regular tour, she's just... Besides the, new, the US Open, Consistently beating has, a lot of top players. Yeah. She has yeah, under, she's underperformed like, at the still, majors besides the US Open, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and and for this, well, like, you know, she, she was able to play such a good level and she hadn't even played for two and a half months because she mm-hmm. was out with injury. So... For me, like, yeah, sort of benchage on a grass court is, is 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 pretty up there. Like, you know, we don't have that many sort of grass grass specialists these days on the WTA. And she she I would say is 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 one of them. And she had beaten Shiantek before at well, I guess all their matches had been pretty competitive, even at the United Cup earlier this year. It, it was a tough two setter for Iga. So I knew the dangers of this match. And yeah, I, I thought uh Shiantek also stayed so calm in that situation and yeah, even even though she didn't end up winning Wimbledon, I think this is a really important match. Like, I think going, yeah, look, we could look back on this match uh, in the future. You know, when when we when we sort of see her put together more of these type of performances, even more consistent. And a lot of the times, to her credit, she's not in those situations because she's just well, she's <laughs> serving a lot of bagels and breadsticks for her yeah. opponents. So it's it's kind of rare that she's in that spot. So when she's able to pull this one off, it's it always means more. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I with think... that and sort of something in a similar vein. Um, no, um, I was just going to say something in a similar vein at a major where we saw her really pushed has to be the final of Roland Garros, especially because you know she was she was up well six two three love in this in this match and sort of cruising, but then you know Mukova put together this run of games and and form where you know it, it was looking scary for Shiantek for a while and so. This one for me is is definitely on the list. Well, also because it's just the finals of Roland Garros, and it just means that much more for her whole season. Like we just look at her season so differently, you know. If we look at Roland Garros, it's like that's the moment for her always. Yeah, that's true. I I should have included it to be honest. <laughs> I know I've said a few times that this match was a choke fest, but because of that, you also get like a lot of let's say lessons learned and you also have a really important victory for her as you said i mean the the, the pressure is so high on her right now anytime she get plays around garros and like this much until beijing it the the round garros title was like the star of her season you know then she also get got the last two weeks which were so important but still round garros is the most important one Anytime she's going to enter the French, anytime she's going to enter the Olympics on clay, which, well, it's only going to be next year probably, but still. Anytime she's going to enter a tournament at Ron Garros, let's say, she's going to be the, you know, the odds-on favorite, whatever, perhaps even better. And um, this is so much pressure on her, and you could see it in the final. I don't know if you could really see it along the way, maybe against Hadad Maya in the second set, but in the final, certainly, though, though when she was 6-2, free love up, we were thinking, you know, maybe Muhova doesn't have enough in the tank after the Sabalenka semifinal. Um, even though, of course, Muhova in general should be a pretty dangerous opponent for Iga with just, you know, how much variety she has and the, like the, the wide repertoire that she can sort of use to either maybe 
close down the net or bring Iga forward where she's not too comfortable. And I think for, for large parts of the match, Buchova was really getting Świątek off the baseline really well. And at that part, at that time, at that yeah. part of the season, Świątek was still like just very comfortable glued to the baseline, but not necessarily anything else. So uh, it's not like Muhova didn't play it well. Uh, there are a few spectacular points in the third set where like she has to improvise Świątek and she comes up with it. For example, that that action at the net, of course. So uh, yeah, Some to get really it really good backhand volley. Yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's. I what remember I'm this one really to, good yeah. backhand volley specifically, which. Yeah, well, it was not easy to pull off in that moment. And yeah, it's, out of our it's, it's like three, four so. down, right? Something like a breakdown yep. in the third. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's yep. that's what that's what I'm thinking of as well. So so yeah, it's absolutely massive for her. I I kind of don't know why I didn't include it. Uh, right now, looking at my list, I just wish I had six spaces, I guess. But but yeah, even though in the past I've expressed some sort of disappointment that this match is so highly regarded, let's say regarded higher than Świątek Garcia, for example. In Beijing in terms of its quality and uh, in terms of the storyline the narrative how important it was for Iga of course it is kind of unmatched in whatever she played this year because yeah that, that that's the most important win of her season single most because even if she got year at number one and didn't get that um, you know it wouldn't be enough um, whereas this was enough like even without the word number one to call this a, a positive let's say to call this season a positive and just like with um, Alcaraz, I decided to include a loss. Uh, I don't know if he did too, but it's probably... Actually, just, just one more thing, uh -huh. actually. Yeah, um, go ahead. Just one more thing while we're on Mukova. Since we did this with Evans and Carlos, in terms of watchability, this match is really high on my list as well. Like just yeah. with the contrast in styles and so just shot making both of them pull off. And sort of what we've seen Mukova do at her best, especially on her forehand side, where she's able to take it down the line really aggressively, come forward, finish it, and then... And uh, sort of ever since, well, I guess Ash Barty retired, she's sort of the closest version of that that we have right now on the tour. And I just want to point out the tour is always a lot better when she's healthy and fully playing her best. And I remember being very disappointed when she had to withdraw the WTA finals and just how every single time she seems to come back really strong after injury. And then, well, it's just very injury prone in general. And I just hope next year we see a fully healthy version of Mukova because yeah, as far as like, you know, Sviantec's rivalries with other players, I think this is one where it's going to continually be close matches because they also played each other in Canada as well. And that was also 6 4 in the third. Plenty of rain delays. And, you know, I think, yeah, Iga will really have to solve. Like, this is a match where she really has to figure out. Like, it's sort of like a pieces of puzzle game that she has to put together and kind of adjust in ways that, you know, she maybe doesn't have to against, uh, well, a less superior baseliner. So that's why I think this. This rivalry and matchup and win is was was pretty important, but also larger contests. Hopefully, they they can play many more times. No, no, I agree with that for sure. I have a couple of friends who like don't watch the WTA tour at all, for example, but they both say, you know, if I'm if I have to watch something, it's Muhova, <laughs> and that makes total sense. Yeah. Like she uh, she definitely has something that is rare on the women's tour. And that goes for her Czech friend, Vondroushova as well. Like the tour is definitely more diverse yep. with them around, with them, you know, at the peak of their powers, which finally happened for the first time this year, really. Well, Vondroushova, I guess, had, well, they both had brief spells before, but were largely held back by injuries. Yep. Uh, but yeah, the loss I was referring to, as as with Alcaraz, I have one loss on the list and it's the Madrid final against Arina Sabalenka. Uh, if I was to name my favorite WTA Tour match of the season, 
And regardless if it's Iga Świątek or not, it would actually be an Iga Świątek match. And it would be either this or Świątek uh, Garcia in Beijing. This one, uh, I think despite the loss, the quality was just sky high from start to finish. Uh, maybe you could start pointing out some tactical flaws in terms of Świątek's disposition. Certainly when Sabalenka was peaking, she was just so um, successful at pushing Świątek to the defense and perhaps Iga at the time didn't really know how to handle it, which I feel like this, you know, right now she would probably do a tiny bit better. But at the same time, it's also Madrid, 700 meters altitude. So, you know, the conditions are faster than on most clay courts. It's not, it's not Ran Garros. It's a shame we didn't get that much in Ran Garros. Although I love the fact that we got Świątek Muchova, but I also would have liked to see how Świątek Sabalenka looks on the surface like that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think that this matchup this year, and you could, you will also see it on my list, um, you know, a couple further times, actually, a bit of a spoiler. But um, Świątek Sabalenka this year, I think they really brought out the best in each other or forced each other to come up with, like, the best individual performances. And even though they only played three times, all of these matches were ridiculous in terms of the, you know, the standard, the quality. They truly were the best two players of the year. From time to time, someone else would uh, jump in. Obviously, at first, Rybakina. Then, let's say, during the Canada since the US Open swing, Coco Golf, of course. Pegula was always lurking there. You had Vondroushova, Muchova with very high peaks. But these two were definitely overall the best that we had in 2023. And I absolutely loved the rivalry this year. Probably was was more competitive than, than in previous campaigns as well. And that Madrid final, uh, to me, was also an example of no-nonsense tennis, let's say. They just got out there. <laughs> they did what they uh, had to do. They They played the match and just left us all amazed, you know? It was, well, maybe also the Australian Open final deserves a mention in terms of my... Uh, well, the best matches of the WTA tour, according to me, but but this was like on par with that. I remember, you know, after after it happened, um, everyone was talking about it on Twitter and how it was just insane. And I I love these moments when like it seems that all the tennis community is just like, wow, that was good, and and that's this match for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no, I totally I totally agree with with that because I remember. I remember the public perception at the time of this match. It was, I mean, people were rating it really, really high and deservedly so because the high octane tennis, like the pace from both of them from the from the back of the court and just trading body blow after body blow and just, I mean, well, just pushing each other side to side and just really just sort of getting the best out of one another. That's that's all you can really ask for in a tennis match, and that's what that's what we got for basically well all three sets because well they were all six three sets too, which was very interesting. But also, um, but also, yeah, like Fiontech really started to pick up her her level. I, I thought, and in the second set as well, and it it seemed like in the first set, hmm, like is Iga really gonna have, is really Iga really gonna be able to match Sabalenka's peak right now? Because that's like that was from start to finish, like some of the best tennis you can see Arena Sabalenka play, like off the ground and also off the serve, and well, just not really hitting many double faults, going huge on second serves, um. And and then for for Shvantek in the in the second set when she improved her serving level, all of a sudden it was up to Arena to, well, not miss as much because because Shvantek was covering the court a bit better and getting a lot more depth on her on her shots and controlling the play a lot more and her heavy topspin suddenly and her kick serve started to get a lot better in the conditions as well and conditions like for Sabalenka this is like as ideal as it gets like you know we talk about like 
you know, for some players, like perfect conditions, like on the men's side, like Zverev at the ATP finals, for instance, in Turin, or like even in Madrid, you know, for, for Sabalenka, like this is the tournament where it's just perfect for her because for her, for her big serve and the average ground stroke speeds and this, well, how also with the high ball toss, how she's able to just control it a lot better and no, no sort of outside elements because as well, it is, does have a bit more of an indoor vibe yeah. with how the stadium is structured. So you, she seems to always play her very best in, in Madrid, also going back a couple of years ago where she beat Ash Barty in a memorable final there as well. Well, actually winning a set against her sixth love and just absolutely playing out of her mind. So she can see, I don't think Sabalenka really sustained that, that, that high of a level all season long. She did, she did well in, in spurts, but from start to finish, like this was a really, really high level match from her. And honestly, in this rivalry, that's probably the conditions where she's going to have the most advantage because you look at it, it's, well, six three in the favor of Iga, but I guess maybe at the U.S. Open they can play. They played a really competitive match as well in twenty twenty two, where Iga had to come back from a set down. But also, um, yeah, like Madrid and and the WTA finals in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. I guess are the other wins for for Sabalenka. But anything faster conditions is definitely going to help Sabalenka a lot more and. Well, yeah, this in combination with like Stuttgart, uh, I think it was also the first time in like 10 years that you had the number one and number two play each other back-to-back tournaments. So all of a sudden it felt like there was this excitement, like rivalry building for a long time with two players that we thought were going to stay there for a, a lot longer. And like staying power hasn't been a big thing with the WTA in terms of consistent rivalries uh, in this in this era where we just have a lot of depth, but we don't really not, we're not quite sure who is, at the very, very top always. So, you know, in some ways, I thought we would get even more matches after Madrid. We ended up getting one more at the WTA finals, which uh, was also another pretty significant match. I actually think you probably have that on your list, if I were to guess. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is where I just tell you what else is on my list, because these matches yeah. can be sort of treated, you know, pretty similarly. I, I kind of hinted, hinted at it already as well. I just have all the free Schwendek Sabalenka matches on my list. I wasn't <laughs> planning for it to be like this, but, you know, I just started doing the list and I was like, Stuttgart, yeah, I mean, for sure. WTA finals, yeah, of course. And then I started thinking whether I want to include the Madrid final and I figured, yeah, a loss is okay if it's like an amazing match and it is. Yeah. So, yeah, to speak about Stuttgart and WTA finals, uh, Stuttgart is also pretty fast clay, you know, the indoor conditions. Oh, and by the way, I like the fact that you um, said that Madrid is like a semi-indoor setting. Usually when I say that, I have to explain why to people, which is good because this time I don't have to and someone actually, uh, you know, considers it like this as well. I don't know if it's actually you know true, but it, it's definitely more sort of, you know, uh, built around the court and, and like it, it does feel like a semi-indoor thing. But anyway... Uh, what I'm trying to say is that Stuttgart is also pretty fast. The conditions are pretty tricky and like not really uh, something that you're going to see on the WTA tour anywhere else. Uh, players have had issues even, you know, moving it, moving on it. Shvantec definitely doesn't. But going into this match, I was also thinking that, you know, this might be similar to Madrid. Well, of course, that was, of course, before Madrid. But I was like, yeah, it's a fast clay court. Sabalenka could probably beat Shvantec here. And then um, on on clay because it's still clay even even if it's pretty fast. Uh, Shvantec only had to save one break point, so that's like my let's say I I can't call it the demolition exactly, but ju- that's just like a very comprehensive display over a phenomenal rival, and that's why I included it really. Uh, yeah. I think you know 
from Świątek standards, let's say in the first half of the year, that, that might be her best individual performance. But uh, the WTA finals, I think, also deserves it uh, for the fact that this was like the peak moment of Świątek's efficient mode that we started seeing around Beijing, especially, let's say, well, against Garcia, perhaps some shades of it, but probably the main examples are the final against Samsonova, where she, for in the first set, she doesn't even hit an unforced error and, you know, just, again, plays the matchup, plays the opponent, not um, not sort of um, focuses in, uh, purely on herself as it was in the past. And at the WTA finals against Sabalenka, I think it was very similar. She was much smarter about sort of taking control away from Arena, unlike in um, in Madrid, for example, where, as you said, they were like just going for each other, at each other, blow for blow. Uh, there was a lot less of that at the WTA finals. And perhaps that's why she was able to produce such a phenomenal display. So, you know, it was, again, just hitting aggressively, but with a lot of margin, allowing the opponent to make the errors as well. And, you know, when the time came and the right moments. And uh, yeah, I think for me, it was just the peak moment of what Świątek was showing on the court in the last two tournaments of the season, which of course was as well very meaningful for her, given that it gave her the number one. And specifically, this match sort of did as it was a showdown between the best two players of the season. Of course, she still had to beat Pagula in the final, but as we know, it was a really short match. So I, I guess over the years, we're sort of going to be coming back to that semifinal against Sabalenka just a little bit more. Mm. It felt more important. I don't know. I just never really felt like Pegula is going to have a chance against her on the in the windy conditions in Cancun. Like, that was the main deal breaker. Uh, but yeah, overall, I just included all three Shvantec Sabalenka matches. Uh, and yeah, as I said, I mean, this was, this was the peak of women's tennis in 2023. You've had some other... Uh, great matches, of course. I think the Australian Open final is on par with that. Świątek Garcia and Beijing is on par with that. But that rivalry, yeah, as you said, I mean, I was expecting to get it more, get more of it. But maybe then we would have some duds and you know some some awful <laughs> matches in it as well. And this this way we only got three, and all of them were exceptional. Perhaps Stuttgart is like the least memorable. But I think it was really, you know, the best of what Świątek had to offer in the first half of the season. And at the time, it felt very surprising to me that on a faster clay court, she is beating Sabalenka this way. Yeah, I like the addition of all three matches, Sabalenka and Świątek, especially the WTA Finals one, just because, yeah, well, like such a big, such a big match for both of them. And also just, yeah, just, you know, I, I thought that was a really high level match as well in terms of quality, even though it was six three, six two, but still like in the wind and just given the circumstances and just you know, in terms of in terms of like individual one really great performance, if I were to pick one throughout the whole year, it would actually probably be that one. So that's uh that's looking back, probably something that I should have had on my list, but at the same time I knew we were gonna hint at it. So maybe maybe I just sort of knew that we were yeah when we talked about Sabalenka Shvantec rivalry it was just going to come up but something that I a match that I kind of look back that I think might uh, that I that, that I wanted to include as number five on my list is the Von Rosova match in the WTA finals maybe it's just because well it was the first match of the event and also just it was going to be very interesting to see how the how all the eight players were going to come out and play in the in the hurricane like conditions and who was going to adjust the most and I sort of had a feeling that well, I had a feeling that Chiantek was going to handle it well. 
I wasn't so sure about Pegula, but well, it ended up being one of her one of the most successful weeks of her career. And for Von Rosova, I also thought it would be it would be advantageous for her, this type of court, just because of the unpredictable bounces. And we know how uh well how much topspin Von Rosova hits on her forehand and just like how good she is defensively as well. So I figured I figured with sort of her craftiness and maybe her going under the radar a little bit and also just well, just how consistently she was performing all year i thought that this would be i thought that she would win at least one match it didn't it didn't happen she, of course she went 0 and 3 but she had her moments against she was very close to beating coco goff and then also in this match against fiontek the reason i have it there especially is because she was up 5-2 in the first set and well it was it was sort of her uh her craftiness mixed with her heavy topspin forehands uh along with yeah you know serving at even some decent serving where Shvantec wasn't able to take control of the rallies with return that she, she, you know that she would sometimes on most players the second serves because Vandrosova was so combining her baseline play with excellent drop shots and forcing Iga to come forward and you know f- finish points at net at times and then dealing with the wind and I thought she was the better player in that first set for most of it so for Shvantec to come back from the double breakdown and then really just win like well, I guess like twelve of the next thirteen games or something like that from two or five down, and you know, finish that off in a bagel was was kind of one of those impressive matches that, in hindsight, well, if she lost that first set, you kind of wonder if she'd have been as dominant at the WTA finals, uh, despite her probably going in as a favorite in most of the matches. But uh, but I just wanted to include this this match as maybe sort of because we because Iga only lost twenty games in total in the in the WTA finals and it's kind of crazy to remember that she was actually down 2-5 in that first set so just for that first set alone I think uh, I think I thought this match should be there it's a surprising inclusion to me however yeah I mean I enjoyed that one for sure I I, I really like the way there's like a clear line between when um, towards 2-5 in the opening set it's Vondroshova who's just luring Sviantek forward it's Shiontek who maybe is like holding the trigger a bit too early. And from that point onwards, yeah. you have Shiontek actually, you know, stepping into the forecourt when she wants to. Like everything is on her terms then. Like the, the patterns of play are actually yeah. fairly similar, but now everything is on her terms. And previously it was Vondroshova just, you know, abusing, let's say, her... Um, you know, being, she can't like being like, say, a little less comfortable there. But then she actually wasn't. She started playing some pretty patient, sort of um, well-constructed points as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, li- I like it. Uh, I'm surprised it made your top five, but I think you justified it well. Uh, do you have one uh, mm-hmm. one more or am I? Uh, no, I thought about also including some of the golf matches just because... So well, so like, you've already uh, named five as well? I thought I thought you named just four. I have, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. No, Never I think, mind that. No, yeah, that's, that's oh, five, because so. you had Mukhova, yeah. I forgot about Mukhova. Um Mukho, the the final, of course. Which should have been included on my list, really. So I guess we both have one pick that should have been included on our lists, but isn't. But because yeah. we did it, you know, we two separate lists, we have both sort of. So it's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure maybe, you know, when people listen to this, they'll remind us of some matches. Yeah. Uh, that yeah we, we maybe didn't have on our list but for the most part I think most of us are going to agree especially with like the Madrid final the Benchich match the Garcia one absolutely has to be on there um, 
and yeah i mean and, and the rest is really like it depends on your flavor and what your criteria are but they're all pretty good batches because they stand out one way or the other so yeah maybe someone will include a double bagel you know um pavlyuchenkova for example or the one that's uh against wang was it at um at the french yeah i mean it's a possibility maybe someone will include jules niemeyer against you at the Australian yeah, open the I, I could actually see it i could actually see it it was pretty cool <laughs> i think if it was like later in the year maybe then i would have been tempted but you know it was january i barely remember it at this point <laughs> but yeah uh, i think we pretty much had the the most important matches of course as vanch said if you guys have any other shouts feel free to either you know dm us or just write in the comments under the tweet or wherever really i think there's also a way of commenting under the podcast which someone has only used yep. one time so far uh but yeah that's probably like slightly less popular than just on twitter so you know fire away if you have any shouts that we missed yeah for sure and leave us a review while you're at it as well because that also helps um especially on apple but uh, but also one other thing I wanted to touch on is um, there's been some videos of Iga practicing her surf uh, that have that have surfaced on Twitter and a lot of people were tagging us on online and just kind of yeah seeing if we had seen it that there's a, a little bit of a adjustment in her surface motion I don't know if you saw that or you have any thoughts on it I saw that someone tagged me and by no means I'm not a tactical technical expert whatsoever. Um, my however like my view of the motion of the video that i saw of course it was like a video a comparison of two serves from iga so you know it doesn't tell the full story uh but i think in a way maybe the importance of it was a little overplayed by the like like the uh, the person who tagged me because it seemed to me like though there is a difference in terms of the let's say the swing path in the end, it was a very similar, well, in the end, it was pretty much the same contact point. And it felt to me like maybe though the, the service motion got more compact in a way. Um, the actual serve produced, I'm not sure if, if it would actually be different from, from yeah, these two videos, from, from these two videos. Again, I'm just going from these two videos. Like it just seemed to me like the, the changes in the motion in these two videos would be largely inconsequential to the actual shot. But again, we're, we're going to see when we have like a huge sample of it, right? Yeah. With, with, with any of these service motions, I need to be able to see it in a match and sort of under pressure to to identify but you know it's interesting to see that there's some tinkering going on in the in the off season that maybe long term this could be something that helps her in terms of her efficiency and just like yeah the how repeatable the service we'll see but um and yeah, and, and, and it's good that they're working on it of course it, it it is one of the main areas to improve still even though it has yeah. in, improved slightly and uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, maybe it's just it's just gonna help her produce it more with, with more repeatability, which which would already be pretty good. So yeah, uh, it's tough to say after these two serves, but uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I actually forgot about it, but indeed, I was I was tagged under a video about that. Yeah, yep. And also one more thing regarding Alcaraz, uh, there's been some reports from Marca that uh, well, his coach Juan Carlos Ferrero is undergoing knee surgery, so he won't be with him during the Australian Open. Uh, of course, we have seen tournaments in the past where 
Ferrero has not been present and well Alcaraz has gone on to do very well win some of those tournaments so we'll see um, if that changes anything I'm assuming Ferrero is still going to be you know giving him a decent amount of info on the opponents that he plays and in terms of scouting and also yeah I mean he's still going to be coaching him but just not going to be there present you know while he's playing the matches but you know just something something interesting new that uh, resurfaced today yeah, I actually didn't see that, but um, yeah, as you said, I mean, he's he's had tournaments where he did well without Ferrero in the past. Um, it's not it's not an amazing situation for Carlos, of course, because he's one of the players no, who like ideal. really talks to his team, you know, a ton. Uh, but in yeah. the end, you know, he's he'll still have people with him there. So even though they might not give him the same sort of tactical technical insight as Ferrero during a match, you know, the the support will still be given. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think he's going to do fine, but of course that's not ideal. It's not going to change my pre-tournament predictions. Let's say when I when I see the draw, I'm not going to be like ah, but Alcaraz is without Ferrero here. <laughs> but it is a factor, you know, and it, it is a thing to consider. Yeah. yeah, for sure. At the at the highest level, you know, every small thing is like becomes yeah. a factor. Right? It becomes like a even if it's a point zero 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 one percent, it's still it's still something. So yeah, well. With that, I think that's that's about it as far as this show goes for well the remainder of of this year most likely unless something really surprising happens and we probably have to record again. But <laughs> with that said, it's been an enjoyable uh, six months for us since we started doing this, and uh, we look forward to yeah being there for all of Iga and Carlos's moments. And I'm sure they'll have plenty of them that are memorable in 2024. And it's cool to kind of reflect back on the, on the whole season and just see the journey that they've. They've sort of been on sometimes in the same weeks, which is which is great for us. Well, because there's just more to talk about, and when they're having success together, well, the podcast, I, I assume, is the interest just gets bigger. So, we'll see if if that happens. But even if they're not in the same weeks, still plenty that we get to get in from both. So, it's been fun doing this, Damien. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely quite enjoyable. How regardless of what's happening, really, there are narratives. I guess this is because. Like if we were doing, let's say, I don't know, a random player, let's say Pedro Cachin, that is podcast, then um, like <laughs> if Pedro Cachin loses, let's say four consecutive times in the opening round, it's not a narrative yeah. yet. Um, if he wins a couple of tournaments, yes. But if he loses a few times in the first rounds, probably not. Whereas here, like we've just chosen, well, you chose and invited me over, you chose players who are sort of expected to be that successful that any loss really is already a talking point. You can talk yeah. about a story, even if it's just them losing in an early round somewhere. And um, yeah, I think that's obviously very helpful. It would be tougher to do it about players who like are not expected to win almost every match they played. But yeah, I've, I've enjoyed doing this for sure. We've given you like, what is it like 18th episode or something like that. We've also covered yeah. the, the off season pretty well, I think with the Iga special, with the Carlos special. Now with this episode, which I hope you also enjoyed. Uh, we definitely did, um, yeah, preparing the lists and talking about them. So, yeah, let's, uh, you know, we'll see you guys in 2024. Yep, we'll see you guys in 2024. And uh, with that, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, you know, listen to the sh listen to the shows uh, and tell your friends about it. You know, leave us a review, rating, check out the Twitter account. And, you know, you know the drill by now. And uh, with that, yeah, see you next time. <laughs>